until a couple months ago, if you Googled drive-in movie theaters, you might get one of those little info box results that suggested the drive-in was all but dead. In the age of COVID-19, ironically, that information is totally outdated. The drive-in, which embraces social distancing almost by design, is booming. And it's not just the existing outdoor screens that were still in operation. Some traditional theaters are creating pop-up outdoor screening spaces. This strategy is not easy to put into action, but it can put employees back to work and build coalitions with other local businesses, all while keeping the spirit of the movies very much alive. This is the Box Office Podcast from Box Office Pro. And this week we are going to talk about the resurgence of the drive-in movie theater. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director at the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Daniel Laria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Russ. And this week, we also have a special guest, uh, staff writer Chris Egertson from Box Office Pro, who recently wrote an article about uh, parking lot cinema and the resurgence of the drive-in. And so we're going to talk to Chris a little bit about what he's found and uh, see what it means for drive-ins in the near future. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Uh, Chris and I actually know each other from way back, and uh, we haven't spoken in a little while just due to life. And uh, (laughs) hey, it's nice to talk to you again. It's nice to talk to you, yeah. So, okay, first, I know that Daniel wanted to start with a little bit of drive-in history. So, Daniel, you know, everybody knows, I think, what a drive-in movie theater is. Not necessarily everyone has been to one because, you know, they were kind of a thing of the 50s and 60s and 70s. So looping back to that quote unquote drive-ins are dead Google result that you might have seen a couple of months ago, give us a picture of what the drive-in looked like prior to the coronavirus. Well, I think the drive-in is a sector that usually brings in a lot of nostalgia, right? Especially with the 1950s. And that's Mostly right. Starting in the post-war period here in the United States with a baby boom and a lot of young families moving to the suburbs, you saw a lot of these big movie palaces, these big city theaters start closing down, start entering a very difficult period in terms of admissions. As you start getting this suburbization of American culture, you also start seeing uh, car culture become very popular. And the drive-in goes through a huge boom in the latter part of the 1940s through most of the 1950s. I was talking to John Vincent Jr., the head of the United Drive-In Theater Owners of America, the trade association in charge of the drive-in industry here in the U.S., and he mentioned that the high point for the drive-in industry was in 1957, where you saw around 4,300 drive-in locations across the country, which was way too many. I mean, you really had a saturated market at that time. Uh, We were looking through our archives recently here through the 1950s, tracking the growth of drive-ins, and we had a lot of coverage in the 1950s in our magazine on these big concerns on how sustainable those numbers were going to be. And we started seeing those numbers dip through the 60s, uh, through the 70s, And you really enter a sort of crisis point in the 1980s. That crisis point in the 1980s happens when a lot of the studios stop giving drive-ins first-run prints, 35-millimeter prints, 
of first run titles. So drive-ins then become this sort of home for uh, second run and B movies, more so than, than a lot of the double feature shows used to be. And with that access to content gone, a lot of theaters start struggling across the United States and you see a lot of them close up shop. Now, the resurgence of drive-ins, I think it's important to say, we can't really point towards the current pandemic as a big sort of inflection point. I think it really started turning around in 1989, which when we look at that summer of 1989, we see a massive summer for Hollywood titles that became available for drive-ins. You have titles uh, like Batman, like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Dead Poets Society, these huge blockbusters that are available in drive-ins over the summer that really mean big business. Because drive-in is a seasonal business, really you need it to be warm, it's very popular in states like Florida, like California, those southern states, but in the rest of the country, it continues to be a seasonal business. The economics are, are very tricky for it to pull off. So that 1989 summer really started creating a change in terms of how profitable and successful these locations were. And of course, that goes into well through the 90s. I'm thinking of titles like Jurassic Park in 1993 that really institute this sort of blockbuster summer movie going season. And that leads us to today. I think pre-pandemic, if we look at those 2018 numbers, there were around 350 drive-ins in the United States a couple of years back. And uh, it's definitely something that, uh, as I said, outside of the South, you really see on a seasonal basis, uh, summer drive-ins. And they're very popular today, not with the teenagers that we associate uh, from the 1950s, but with families. They're a big sort of uh, experience destination for a lot of families over the summer to see family content together. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I don't know if either of you have any personal experience with going to the drive-in. Yeah, where do you guys fall? Have you been to drive-ins or is it just a thing you know about from the past? Yeah, you know, I, I think I've only been to a drive-in one time, and I think I was about 12. There used to be one in the town that I grew up in, in Ventura, which is about an hour north of L.A. I seem to remember something about them, like, affixing a speaker to, like, one side of the car. So there's, like, sound coming out of one side. I may not be remembering that correctly, but that's my, my sole memory of being at a drive-in theater. And I don't even remember what movie it was, to be honest. Well, unfortunately, I guess the most memorable part of your drive-in experience was uh, frustration that's actually quite popular that uh, has been a big focus of the drive-in industry in recent years to correct, which is bad audio. For years, I think, as the standard of movie going uh, improved year over year with different technology, audio kept being that really difficult final thing to get ready, to get right. And yeah, you had the mini speakers that you could pull in to, to one side of the car, then you had the sort of speaker poles. There've been different solutions, but now Chris, you've spoken with a number of different uh, drive-in operators in the country. And uh, well, as you can vouch, the technology has changed significantly since that first experience you had. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, I had mentioned that to one of the people that I was interviewing for the story about the speaker on the side of the car. And he said, we've actually come a long way since then. We use these FM transmitters now that can actually play audio from the film directly into your car. So it's a much better sound quality. Unfortunately, those FM transmitters can run up to the thousands of dollars to purchase. So for some of these theater owners who are converting to a drive-in format during the pandemic, 
it can be a little pricey and a lot of theaters unfortunately just can't you know pay that amount of money but yeah no definitely this sounds like the sound issues have been have been worked out since i went many many years ago let's take a step back real quick and can you give us kind of the basics of conversion process and what theaters are are doing now to create these kind of pop-up drive-ins during our current situation i think it's first important to talk about like some of the challenges and even like getting these up and going in the first place you know a lot of states still won't allow drive-ins to operate although i think that's obviously easing up a bit now that you know states are starting to ease their stay-at-home mandates and you know that obviously the cost is extremely prohibitive for you know especially small independent theaters like i mentioned the fm transmitters for the sound you might need to buy a projector if you don't have a proper projector for an outdoor screening you might need to be, buy an actual screen frames for the screen there are servers for the contents obviously a lot of theaters already have these things they, they might have an extra projector they can put outside or whatever but you know, if you need the full package of all this stuff, it can run up to on that very high end, like a hundred thousand dollars. So obviously not you know feasible for a lot of smaller theaters. But I think you know once you get a, a one of these drive-ins sort of up and running, you know you need uh, safety mandates from local health officials. You need obviously masks and gloves for your employees who are working. If you're offering concession sales, which a lot of these pop-up drive-ins are offering concession sales, you know, that can be a complicated process. A lot of these theaters have these apps that you can put in your order and then you text basically your order to a dedicated phone number. And then you'll have employees in masks and gloves like actually come out to your car and, and deliver your, your food. But it can take a really long time, especially if they have a lot of orders. So there's some frustration on that end of things. Um, obviously, bathroom access is very important. Most of the theaters, or actually all of the theater owners that I spoke with, are actually offering customers the use of their indoor bathrooms, but they're only allowing like one person or one group in at a time. As you, if you can imagine, you know there might be a pretty long line to get into bathrooms, which is not great if you've had a lot of Diet Coke or something. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges with this. And for the theaters that have done it, it's actually been the ones that I spoke with anyway, it's been working pretty well. But there are certainly some hurdles to overcome before you get there. Most frustrating, like LinkedIn comments that I see from the, you know, hashtag influencer community and LinkedIn, which goes, oh, movie theaters are in trouble. Just open a drive-in. Problem solved. As you mentioned, Chris, <laughs> there is uh, a, a number of uh, logistical hurdles and legal hurdles, uh, safety hurdles you have to get through to be able to do so. And I think it's interesting, as you mentioned, concepts like mobile concessions ordering, spacing out uh, bathroom access. Those are lessons that uh, what they call hardtop theaters, uh, indoor theaters, are going to be taking from the drive-in community, as we can see some of them have already been in operation or available in the country. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Chris Escobar, who owns and operates the historic single screen plaza theater in Atlanta. And at the time, he was talking about how he was working to convert the parking lot behind the plaza into a pop-up drive-in. And Chris, to your point about the difficulties in getting things set up, needing approvals from the city, all that sort of thing. 
it was only several weeks later in this over this past weekend of May 8th and 9th, I guess, that they were finally able to open this. And I've seen that being in contact with Chris, they've done it with exactly a lot of those measures that you're talking about. You know, they encourage people to use the bathroom before they show up, but they are making their physical facilities available to one person at a time. They've partnered with nearby restaurants to offer concessions. They're trying to do a completely contactless experience so that it's as safe as possible for people. But, you know, they've also done this in concert with a GoFundMe that helped them finance this and with the cooperation of a number of different businesses in the Atlanta area who helped them out with specific technological and infrastructural needs. I think a lot of these theaters too, especially the ones that I spoke with, obviously there are many more around the country, a lot of them are just, you know, they just don't have the money to do this, you know, with using all the professional equipment and everything. So a lot of them are just doing like sort of makeshift style pop-up drive-ins. So one theater I spoke with actually painted just one of the walls of their auditorium white to project the, uh, <laughs> the picture on that. So, you know, like I said, a lot of theaters already have, they might have an old projector they can use or something like that. So you know, a lot of them are just turning to sort of like sort of low cost solutions to kind of get around some of the, particularly the financial hurdles and in, in getting one of these up and running. I will say that, you know, obviously you, you need a sizable parking lot to do this. And, you know, especially a lot of smaller independent theaters may not have a parking lot like that. So it's not really feasible for them. Also, if you say, you're, if you're in a shopping center with a lot of like security lighting it can be really challenging because obviously you can't screen a, a drive-in movie if you have all this bright lights everywhere. So there are, even if you do have, you know, a proper sized parking lot, there are a lot of, you know, logistical challenges outside of that that could prevent you from, from doing this. So that's a great point in terms of obstacles. You've got the natural obstacle that it has to be dark enough for the image to appear. And with uh, the warmer weather, it means uh, a later start time and fewer show times. And then, as you mentioned, you've got light fixtures and uh, other sort of signage that is typical in parking lots that you also have to battle against. And then, meanwhile, you know, we do have some already existing drive-ins that are doing exceptionally well, uh, which is these businesses obviously don't have the hurdles of doing new setup, you know, like the Mission Tiki Drive-In Theater, which kind of serves the Los Angeles and County and nearby counties. Uh, it's located in Montclair, California. That place has been booming, and you've certainly living in the LA area. You see a lot of people talking that up. The Starlight Drive-In in Atlanta, which is one that I spent years going to as an adult all the time for that affordability reason that was mentioned earlier. You know, it was like seven bucks to get in for a double feature, and you could stick around and watch the first movie a second time, uh, which is how I saw Disturbia like six times when that came out. <laughs> you're, so <laughs> um, you're the one person that saw it. I, I thought it was seven different people. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, as a rear window remake, Disturbia was, was entertaining. I, I liked it a lot. <laughs> Maybe not uh, worth six and, showings, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I just realized we skipped you, Russ. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what is your sort of iconic, uh, drive-in experience? I have to accept that I've never been to one. I've never had the opportunity. 
I mean, I know I went to one as a kid. I grew up in Northern California, you know, when I was in elementary school and that sort of thing. And my dad was a big car guy and we were very much like a car culture family. We didn't fly anywhere. We would go on cross-country road trips as our family vacations. So I know I went to drive-ins as a child, but I don't have very specific memories. And then in around 06 or 07, I sort of fell in with a friend group in Atlanta, and we all started going to the Starlight, uh, which is just south of Atlanta, all the time. I mean, we would sometimes go twice in a weekend, Friday and Saturday nights, and it was great because it was just a group experience. Sometimes we'd be in our cars. More often, we'd bring like a big boombox that could pull in, pull in the FM signal. And we would just sit there like on blankets and there'd be 20 of us sometimes. And it was a really unique and terrific experience. And we did that for, you know, three or four years where it was, where that was just kind of the thing we did all the time. So personally, I have probably more experience with the drive-in than your average person and I, and very fond in fairly recent memories. That's interesting. I think for me growing up in, in Latin America, the concept isn't very popular throughout the region. Um, and that's starting to change. One of the people that Chris was able to interview for his story, Alex Younger, the CEO of uh, Cinema Equipment and Supplies out of Miami, was uh, telling me a couple of weeks ago how they've begun to speak to exhibitors in Latin America about exploring the drive-in concept. And little by little, they're seeing some trials actually be successful there. Uh, we're also seeing through the trade press, some publications citing the success of drive-ins in, in countries like Germany, for example. So this concept that we sort of associate with uh, the United States, with uh, car culture, with the suburbs, is uh, little by little finding new destinations because of this pandemic. Yeah, and I... I think to go way back, you know, the drive-in as a concept is very deeply baked into a lot of the types of cinema that are very popular right now. You know, horror for one thing. You know, there are a lot of movies that began as, you know, drive-in fodder. You know, the early independent uh, American movies were often made for the drive-ins. They were made to be cheap. They were made to pull kids in. But those movies evolved into exploitation movies, which evolved into horror and ultimately informed a lot of things that are still very popular. And the DNA of the drive-in is, is very, very integral to a lot of those types of movies, which makes the drive-in to me kind of an interesting phenomenon in that I think that for a lot of people, it is rightly a thing of the past for American cinema specifically. And yet it's still something that people, I think, are very hyper aware of and about which they have a very definitive or a very definite impression, even if that impression is not entirely correct. People still think they, you know, they know what a drive-in is and, and they've got a pretty good idea of what they could expect if they were to, to pull into one tomorrow. Oddly enough, I think if we look at where the audiences today, the younger teenage audiences today what sort of out-of-home entertainment experiences they value. Well, back when out-of-home entertainment was something we experienced rather than dreamt about in our most wonderful fantasies, they would usually draw out experiences, right? We've, we've heard a lot about this, the experience economy, the out-of-home destination center. And for younger generations, for millennials, uh, the cell phone is a big part of that. You know, taking a selfie, being sharing something on social media, 
where going to a movie theater, a traditional movie theater, that's looked down upon. You'll get thrown out of uh, many theaters that I like going to for pulling out your cell phone there. At a drive-in, it's actually encouraged. It's something that you can do comfortably and you're really not gonna bother anyone around you. So in terms of the experience economy, part of this quote unquote revival of the drive-in that I, as I was saying, I think really started to come about the 1990s and has sort of kept on humming along since, owes to this sort of uh, new generation and the experience economy concept. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you can get away with a lot of stuff at a drive-in that you can't in a regular movie theater, you know, and that's- What are you talking Really? I haven't- (laughs) I don't know. Hmm. Um, So I can imagine that's, you know, obviously where a lot of the appeal, because I think a lot of the audiences, I I may be totally wrong, but it seems to me a lot of the audiences for drive-ins were like younger viewers, like teenagers and stuff who- Wanted to go to a place where they could, I don't know, make out with their girlfriend or whatever, and something you couldn't get away with in a real, in regular theater. So it was the original Netflix and chill. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> very good. But, very good. You know, sir. Interestingly enough, it, what, you know, we had a, a survey in 2018 of, of drive-in audiences, and what we found is, although there was a lot of uh, teenagers that liked going because of these reasons families really over-indexed in going to the drive-in. Because when you think about it, and I think Russ was chatting a little bit about this, the price point to go is a little bit lower. The sort of comfort of, say, is, well, as Russ can tell us, if you have a a toddler or, or a child with you and they decide to get fussy, it's going to be a lot more manageable to do it at a drive-in than, you know, having to walk out of a screening room with a, with a crying child. Yeah, no question. I mean, I guess the other thing there is, you know, you can't operate a drive-in during the day for obvious reasons. And that gets complicated in summer if you're in a region where, you know, it's not getting dark until 930, which sort of changes the game in terms of taking your kids to the drive-in because, you know, like conceivably, yes, I could take my infant to the drive-in, but he goes to bed at 730. Uh, You know, it's still light now in LA when he goes to bed. But, you know, conceivably we could put him in the back of the car and if we could lull him to sleep, then yeah, my wife and I could go see a movie together. Certainly if you have older kids, it's a lot easier. I think the classic image of, you know, the family in the station wagon at the drive-in with the kids kind of nodding off to sleep in the back is a pretty powerful one because it's, you know, as we keep circling around this idea of like, oh, people would go to the drive-ins to make out or it was part of car culture. All of these things were part of like a post-war culture of freedom in America, right? This idea that you could go anywhere that you want and that you could maybe skirt around some rules here and there. And the drive-in, I think, is very much a part of all of that. And for parents, maybe the idea is like, oh, we can take the kids and they're going to fall asleep, but we still get to enjoy the experience of being at the drive-in. Yeah, I mean, I really love just the nostalgic idea of the drive-in, you know? Like I said, I've only been to once in my life, but it really does have this sort of, the idea of it in my mind is is very almost idyllic in a way, but maybe I'll need to try out going to one as an adult and see how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, now is, again, the whole freedom of movement thing is takes on a new dimension when we're in, you know, under stay-at-home lockdown orders, which, you know, now they're saying uh, in LA County, that's likely to be extended through July. So suddenly you're looking at, well, okay, maybe I'm going to trek out to uh, the San Gabriel Valley and go to one of the drive-ins. 
And, you know, that'll be a good weekend or a good weeknight, you know, activities. So yeah. Check it out. See what happens. I think people, too, are going to be really skittish going back into regular hardtop movie theaters after this. So, you know, we could really see, even after the pandemic subsides more and more, we could still see a resurgence because I think, you know, it's an option for people who don't want to sit in front of Netflix like they have been for the last two, two and a half months, but, you know, and they want to get out, but they don't necessarily want to be inside with a bunch of people who could be potentially, you know, spreading the virus around. So yeah. I'll be interested to see how this plays out, you know, going forward, even after sort of the pandemic, we get a vaccine, for example. Yeah, I think that's a great point you bring up, Chris. I think there's a lot of people working very hard to make the movie going experience as safe as possible. But uh, beyond that, consumer confidence is going to be very, very gradual to return to the levels of demand that it used to have. So part of that will be finding avenues such as drive-ins that can sort of act as a buffer. And for people that want to wait a little bit more, want to take their time to return to the theaters, to still watch new content and engage with, with new movies. I think that's going to be a, another important transition for the industry because there hasn't been a new release uh, for two months already, I believe, in around the world. And uh, in any corner of this industry, going uh, two to four months with archival content is going to be very tricky. So I'm going to be very curious to see what the role of drive-ins are once we have new releases like uh, Tenet or Mulan in mid to late July. Yeah. I mean, I think right now there's sort of a hunger for nostalgic content, you know, stuff that people remember from when they were kids or, you know, sometime in their past. And so I think at least right now, these like repertory screenings are really cool for people because it's kind of an escape from our present circumstances. And it kind of takes you to a time in the past that was more enjoyable than the time we're living through now. So, but yeah, I think at a certain point, you know, that's going to wear out and, you know, the novelty is going to wear off and people are going to want, you know, like someone said in the my article, you know, that's one of one of my interviewees was talking about the fact that, look, just like traditional theaters, at a certain point, you're going to need the Wonder Woman's, you're going to need the Star Wars to lure people in, you know, long term. So, yeah, no question. And I, I do think we'll, there will be new movies again. We're seeing even this week that maybe uh, the, you know, the timeline is still maybe less certain than we would like. But I think that there will be a pipeline of new movies at some point in the not too distant future. Right. And you have like some like IFC is doing like drive-in screenings of some of their new films that people are seeing. I IFC is now the box office champ is <laughs> from where I'm looking. <laughs> <laughs> That's very unexpected. But uh and you have like the odd like Valley Girl, like the Valley Girl remake I think came out this weekend and some drive it was being shown in some drive-ins and so there are there is some new content being screened and you know stuff like The Invisible Man and stuff that was in theaters when the shutdowns happened. But obviously those are, you know, smaller scale titles and, and older titles. Again, you're going to need these big blockbusters at some point. Yeah, no question. Chris, let's assume that a theater has leapt over the technological hurdles and other things, and now they've got an operation in place. Based on the businesses that you spoke to, is this a way that they've been able to keep their staff working full time during the coronavirus crisis? 
Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a few theaters for this, and, and they all mentioned that they've been able to either, you know, keep people on staff, you know, maybe they hadn't furloughed anyone yet, but they were potentially going to, or actually bringing employees back that they had furloughed. So it's actually allowed them to keep, you know, a lot of employees on staff. Actually, a couple of locations I spoke with actually said that they had been forced to hire a few extra people to kind of just deal with the complex logistics of running a pop-up drive-in. So, you know, you also have, uh, in addition to concessions and people taking tickets and all of that, you need people sort of dedicated just to making sure that people are like following the rules. They're like not getting out of their cars and walking around and potentially exposing other people. So, or, you know, some theaters don't even allow people to get in like, say, the bed of their truck. So you need people to kind of dedicate it to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's been really great for these theaters and just bringing staff back and obviously providing them with a revenue stream, you know, where they, where they were operating with 0% revenue before. Now they're at least getting a little something. Obviously that's limited given the fact that you can only screen movies at night. So they're you know, limited to one to two showings and, you know, usually just on weekends. But it's been a blessing for theaters, I think, to just have this revenue coming in when they weren't even sure if their businesses were going to survive and obviously great for the employees too. So, yeah, that's kind of the impression I got from Chris at the Plaza in Atlanta as well is that, you know, they've been working to try to keep their staff paid, but that things obviously were were looking difficult. And, and this operation was one way to keep that going. And actually, I just recalled that they're not even just doing the location uh, behind the theater, behind their own theater. There's a kind of an improv and comedy theater in Atlanta called Dad's Garage. And while that is closed right now, the plaza is actually using that location as a second pop-up screening, pop-up drive-in spot and sharing some of the revenue with Dad's Garage as well. So it's actually something that is spreading to even more than just the original core business, which I think is a really terrific outcome. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of these theaters that I spoke with also have been seeing really good business from this. Evo Entertainment mentioned that they had uh, one location that can accommodate like 1600 cars, which must be a massive parking lot. And that they had a set, they've had some sellout screenings. So, you know, some of them are are thinking of even doing long-term, even once they start sort of reopen their hardtop theaters, something they might continue doing. So yeah, this could be, uh, some of these locations could be doing this well into the future. I love it. That's great. Well, Chris, thank you very much for sharing uh, your reporting with us. And uh, awesome. Yeah, this is a cool thing. And I hope more businesses are able to either pull some of these together or maybe even work with other businesses in their community to make it happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Daniel, good to talk to you again, as always. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Box Office Podcast, which is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and Bradley Denham and written and hosted by Daniel Laria and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks again to our special guest, Chris Egertson, for joining us. Uh, We will be back next week to further explore the developments in the cinema industry as we move forward out of spring and into the summer.